Are you one of our regular students for Self-Improvement Wednesday? Each week you get to learn something new. Your lesson this week, the eruption heard around the world. Your teacher is Heather Handley, Associate Professor of Volcanic Hazards and Geoscience Communication at the University of Twenty and Associate Adjunct Professor at Monash University. Heather, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yeah, now we're in 1883 and we're in Indonesia for this, uh, this lesson today. Yeah, it's a very uh, momentous moment for volcanoes, I think, around the world. Okay, what, uh, what was so remarkable about the, the explosion of, of Krakatoa volcano? So I think one thing was the, the size of the volcanic eruption, but it also happened at a time when global communication was, you know, just starting to occur and the transatlantic cable had, had gone between, I think, uh, UK and, and North America. So it was a time when, you know, news was moving fast around the world, but also it was a, such an explosive and powerful eruption that it was felt and experienced by many people outside of Indonesia where it happened. Hmm. I mean, just a, a few bits of data to, to make it clear how big it was, 20 kilometre high plume at times. Yeah, so even before the climax, the biggest part of the eruption, there were 20 kilometre high plumes, which is really hard, really, really hard to imagine. You know, and there was lots of uh, pumice floating in the water, but this was nothing to what was going to happen, you know, if, like several months after the initial eruption started when, when the really big part of the eruption occurred. Okay, describe that for us and, and its impact. Yeah, so after a few months of of uh, activity, of earthquakes, of, you know, they could see the, the water changing colour around this island, the Krakatoa. So it's not like it was now. It was actually a much bigger island in 1883 with three volcanic vents on it. And then after a few months of activity, it suddenly heightened and there was a really big, several several big explosions which blew the, the island apart and created these huge uh, columns of ash and gas into the atmosphere, but also the these deadly pyroclastic flows. So you hear about, you know, when you see on volcanoes, you see them running down the sides of the mountain and these are big clouds of hot gas, ash and rock fragments. So Krakatoa is out in the Sunda Strait. So it's located between Sumatra and Java. So it's, it's kind of surrounded by water. So you think, okay, people would be safe from these pyroclastic flows because they just go into the water. But these pyroclastic flows that entered the water did two things. One of them was they actually travelled across the water and reached Sumatra 40 kilometres away. So these pyroclastic flows, these hot clouds, travelled across the surface of the water and did uh, create about 2,000 fatalities from those flows on Sumatra themselves. But more importantly, what they did is they pushed the water. So as these pyroclastic flows entered the water with such force, they pushed the water and created a tsunami, so a wave of water, which then travelled very fast and reached the coastlines all around. And also, these tsunamis were reported to you know, reach great distances outside of Indonesia. Mm, I mean, more than 36,000 fatalities, mainly because of the tsunamis. And the, the, the impact was so widely felt. Take Australia as an example. It was widely felt in Australia. Yeah, so you might not necessarily be aware, but there were m many different impacts on Australia. And these ranged from, well, one, just hearing the sounds of the eruption. So loud noises were reported in Western Australia and the Northern Territory. So people described it as rumbling sounds like distant gunfire um, and also like, you know, heavy artillery out at sea. So these noises were heard and these noises were 
you know, it was the loudest noise recorded at the time. Um, but people also experienced ash. So there was a report in Western Australia of a traveller that felt something like ash falling on them, but it was very hard, um, unlike the ash from a fire. And then the ash became heavier. So this continued for several hours. But I think that one of the most... Um, I guess, important aspects was the tsunami. And so across pretty much all of Australia, even to Tasmania and across to New Zealand, this tsunami that was created, this wave of water actually reached the coastlines. And in Western Australia, um, you know, people didn't really understand at, the mo at that time, you know, to watch for signs of tsunamis, maybe not familiar. So European colonists not really familiar with dealing with tsunamis. So when the water goes out prior to, you know, the tsunami actually, the wave coming in, they didn't really understand what was happening, just reported, oh, some strange occurrence of the, the water going up and down. But what happened was the, t the tide or the, the water went out and then they thought, oh, look at all these stranded fish, let's go and collect them off the mm -hmm. beach. So they were down there collecting fish, you know, stranded fish. Um, then the wave came in. I mean, luckily it wasn't as big as it was in Indonesia, but it was still over two, two meters in height. So it almost did trap some people uh, on the coast, but I didn't, I haven't reported, I haven't read any reports of people that actually, you know, were, um, mm. it caused well, them. Although there was, loss, there was loss of life, livestock in Australia, wasn't there? Yeah, so there was a case where, unfortunately, you know, there was someone loading of a ship of livestock. And in that case, yeah, I think they lost about 10, 10 stood rams, rams that were, you know, f that fell into the water as they were, as they were trying mm -hmm. to be un unloaded. So, I mean, look, we were quite lucky in that Australia didn't suffer more impacts of that, or at least there weren't any reported um, human impacts of this um, injuries. What did people around the world think about it? Did they find it spooky? Did they find it a science story or a kind of God, God in his heaven story or, or what? I think everyone around the world was quite mesmerised by this eruption, quite fascinated by it and wanted to find out more. And, you know, it also influenced artists. So there's, when we have these large-scale eruptions and the impacts they create on the atmosphere and the, um, and the skies, we see these dramatic sunsets. And so, you know, people document this through... Um, artwork and in paintings and so it did it didn't have as big an effect on climate as a previous eruption in indonesia which was a larger eruption the tambora one of 1815 but it did create some you know atmospheric uh, impacts and and dramatic sunsets associated with this volcanic eruption and the amount of ash and gas um, mm. emitted into the atmosphere now after this huge explosion the the island basically disappears below the uh, the waters in, in 1883 and, and, and soon after. But then in 1927, it re-emerges, doesn't it? Yeah, so if you think about this huge eruption that blew apart um, an island that was standing above the sea, then you've created a big hole underneath the water. We call this a caldera or, or a crater. And so on this caldera, this big hole under the ocean, a new volcano then. So activity continued, we just couldn't see it. And eventually it grew on the rim of this caldera at the edge of it up and reached above the surface in about 1927-28. And then it's over the last, up, to, up until another eruption in 2018, it was growing and growing uh, steadily over time up to a height of about 335 metres above sea level. But then in, in 2018, there was a, another uh, eruption, not as large as the 1883, but also uh, created a tsunami which caused at least for over 430 fatalities and injuring over 1,000 people along the coastlines in, in Indonesia. Okay, and that uh, activity is continuing, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so over the last, since, since 
1883 eruption, there's been um, a large number of eruptive periods over that time and it's continuing yeah, to present day. So the volcano is definitely uh, still active, still erupting very frequently and they're continuous. Um, the current phase of activity has started in May 2021. Yeah, well, watch out, uh, you know, uh, if you're in Western Australia or, or Tasmania. Now, eruptions the size of Krakatoa usually occur on average once every 100 years. Uh, the big question, I suppose, is, is the world prepared for something of this scale again? Yeah, I think the short answer is no, we're not really prepared. So some of these eruptions that happen that are larger than, you know, the smaller ones we're more used to don't happen very often but when they do they have uh, impacts that cross borders so yes this eruption in indonesia you know it, it affected um even there was even pomice washed up with uh, human skulls on there reported in in africa so this had a huge you know this tsunami the wave the the, the pomice that floated in the water affected all the regions around there and what we can say at the moment is what we saw with the Tongan eruption in 2022, which also was, you know, one of these eruptions that occurred just below the water in this case, um, but surrounded by water and created a huge sound that was heard in Alaska, created tsunamis that created fatalities in Peru. You know, you would not expect this to happen. How do you prepare for one of these events somewhere in the world that can affect all these other regions? And how do we communicate that? And I would argue that we're not we're not prepared for larger scale volcanic events that happen not as frequently as the the smaller ones um, and that we're not really ready for this kind of cross-border international response that's needed. So the Tongan eruption closed beaches uh, down the east coast, if you remember, um, of Sydney. So yeah, I remember going to the beach yeah, and, there was, and it was closed. Yeah. And how good are we, how good is science about predicting when it might happen? I, you know, I, I know you have, you have equipment that shows uh, when you get volcanic uh, activity, but are we very good at predicting it? So it's improved. There's obviously a lot of... So Indonesia, for example, has 129 active volcanoes. You know, it's extremely hard to monitor them to the level that you would need for the resources needed to do that. Um, we do have very good... Um, monitoring equipment now in space so we use satellites to look for uh, gas emissions heat anomalies so we can pick you know if there's uh, some lava coming out that we can't necessarily see from on the ground and we can also look at ground changes movement changes to see if something's inflating like a balloon which might might suggest that there'll be an eruption but what we can't necessarily do very well is uh, detect these volcanic generated tsunamis so when you have these tsunami buoy warning systems, they usually detect earthquakes that generate tsunamis, not volcanoes. And so there was an earthquake system uh, buoy, you know, for tsunami detection in place for the 2018 eruption, but it wasn't working and, and, and it wouldn't have detected a volcanic generated tsunami, only an earthquake one. So there's much improvements we can still do to uh, prepare because volcanic generated tsunamis roughly account for a quarter of all volcanic related deaths. So I think in that sense, there's much more we could be doing, but you know, we're, we're doing our best with the resources that we have. Yeah. Well, uh, good luck to you and, and all your colleagues. We, we're cheering you on. Heather Handley, Handley, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Self-improvement Wednesday. Heather Handley is Associate Professor of Volcanic Hazards at the University of Twenty and Associate Adjunct Professor at Monash University. You can listen back to her lesson as always, abc.net.au. Next week, the mystery of the medieval supernova with astronomer and philosopher Miroslav Flipovic. That's Self-Improvement Wednesday next week.